0: Cactus Campus and our Mountain Valley Campus, as well as our chapel next door and our venue across campus, join us now to talk intelligently and passionately about this idea of a resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. Let's all bow together and enter into prayer. God, we do thank you for this day, arguably your day, where you entered into history. You, You came in the form of a man. You went to a cross. And did something for our sin we couldn't do ourselves. And then to show victory over death and sin you rose on the third day. That's the claim. That's what your word says. That's what's recorded in history. And so, Lord, we gather here to worship, to to, to sing, to be with each other, to carve some time out of our lives so that we might pause and think about this incredible claim and, most importantly, the implications upon our lives in 21st century living so Lord would you bridge the gap now between what you did in history 2,000 years ago to our lives today as we consider all of that and we pray this in Christ's name and we say together amen so as many of you know I've been here by eight years in the valley uh, before I came here I was at a uh, church just out of Cleveland Ohio my hometown called Chagrin Falls and I was there for six years a little Over a decade ago, when I first got there, uh, there was a bunch of guys one night playing uh, basketball. Just picture middle-aged guys playing pickup basketball, and I wasn't there, but I sure heard about it later. One of the guys, Mark, who was about six foot four, a uh, athletic guy, said to Bob, who was a little bit smaller, guard level, but they had been playing basketball for years, he said, you know, I was playing basketball with our new pastor the other day, Jamie, and I got to tell you, you're not going to believe this, but he can dunk a basketball, and Bob looked at Mark and he said, There's just no way that our new pastor can dunk a basketball. And Mark said, If I if I hadn't seen it for myself, I wouldn't believe it. I'm telling you, he can dunk a basketball. And Bob said, You know what? The guy is like five foot six, two hundred pounds. I'm actually five foot seven, thank you, and about two oh five, but who's counting? He said, There's no way a guy with that kind of build is gonna be able to dunk a basketball. And Mark called over some of the other guys and said, hey guys, didn't you see Pastor Jamie dunk a basketball? And they all said yes. So for a few weeks, this went on back and forth and they kept telling Bob, just ask him, just ask him, he won't lie to you. So one day I was in the grocery store, I knew nothing about all of this and I ran into Bob and I said, hey Bob, you know, nice to see you and all that and we were chatting and when we got done chatting, I could tell he still wanted to ask me something. I can still remember that. And I started walking down the next aisle, and he ran around the aisle in the grocery store and was coming right at me. And it was very awkward, and he said, i got to ask you an off-the-wall question. Just be honest with me. And I thought it was going to be something rich and theological or like that. And he said, can you dunk a basketball? And I didn't even know what to say. I just looked at him like he was an idiot, and he knew right away, and he said, I knew it. I knew it. I knew they were lying to me, and out came the whole story. And I remember saying to him, Bob, I'm a pastor who believes in miracles, and it would take one for me to dunk a basketball. You know, what Bob experienced, and even the thought that a five foot seven guy, about 205 pounds, could dunk a basketball, was that he was stunned. That's what I need you to grab onto today as we consider the resurrection. I wanted to talk to you about this idea of being stunned. I looked it up in the dictionary this week. Stunned is defined as a sudden and great surprise. So I would say stunned is this. It's being surprised times 100. It's being surprised on steroids. That's the idea of stunned. It goes way beyond surprise. You're surprised when you get a nice tax return worth a few hundred bucks. You're stunned if you win the Arizona Lottery worth a few million. You're surprised if the girl that you want to date says yes to a date. You're stunned if she agrees to marry you. You're surprised when your favorite NFL team wins the Super Bowl. You're stunned if it's the Cleveland Browns. You get the idea, right? There's a significant difference between being surprised And being stunned. We all know that. We've experienced that. And the reason that I think it's important today, now now here's the deal guys, is that when you look closely at the resurrection accounts of Jesus, which I did again this week, what you notice is that there's three primary groups of people that experienced uh, firsthand this resurrection. Uh, There were the women who were at the tomb, there were the guards who were guarding the tomb, and then there were the disciples who heard the news first, and a couple of them ran to the tomb. And so you have three very, very different groups of people. Like, you don't get much more divergent than a group of women, military guards, and religious disciples. And yet one thing that they all three had in common, now don't miss this, when they first heard the news or saw an empty tomb, is that they were stunned. Not surprised, they were stunned, like big time, of what happened when they found that the grave was empty. They didn't see it coming, they were blindsided, it took them all off guard. And yet, that's where they depart from each other. They all share this idea of being stunned, but what I found interesting is that as I look closely at these stories again this week, each one of these groups had a very different response to their stunnedness, and that particular response that they had to the empty tomb made all the difference in the quality and makeup of their spiritual experience and life at the resurrection of Jesus. So here's our main point, this Easter weekend. Here's what I need you to get about Easter if you don't get anything else. And that is that everybody is stunned at the resurrection of Jesus. I would submit that that's true even today. But what makes the difference is their response. That's what I need you to wrestle with everybody's stunned. That's why we have History Channel specials and PBS specials and and, and O'Reilly's Killing Jesus and all the things. I mean, people are in today. They're into this idea that Jesus existed and what he was about. Everybody's stunned at this idea of a resurrection. But I'm telling you, what makes the difference is one's response. And I believe that this idea has profound implications for you and me today. That when we look at the three historic groups who were stunned at the resurrection of Jesus and the response that they had and tracked those responses, there's something in there for you and I. There's some positive experiences in there. There's some warnings in there. There's a lot we can learn and apply to 21st century living just by looking at the original resurrection accounts. So in our time remaining today, I want to unpack what is happening in these three groups of people around the resurrection, and I want you to ask yourself very personally, which one of these groups or responses do you tend to relate to right now in your life, and even what this might mean for you? So let's go at it. Let's first look at the women who were at the tomb, the women. Let's read the resurrection account so that we're all clear. In Matthew 28, Verses 1 through 8, the story unfolds of the resurrection, and it says this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Luke adds that Joanna was there and some other women. Mark adds that there was Salome. so just picture a lot of women. Verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now, let's track the experience of these women. The first thing I need you to notice here is that their initial reaction to the stunnedness of an empty tomb was fear. It was obviously fear. It says in verses 5 and 8, but the angel said to the women, women, do not be afraid. And then it says they departed the tomb with fear. And this is an understatement. Mark tells us in his account that these women were trembling, astonished, and afraid. Luke tells us that they were perplexed and terrified. John tells us that one of them was even weeping. So add it all up. Lots of different verbs to describe one single human emotion, fear. Fear of where Jesus was. Fear probably of an angel and not understanding all of this. Fear that their master's body was gone. They had fear. But it's interesting, in tracking the elements of their being stunned, something happens next that changes everything. Something happens that alters their fear into something else. Look at how Luke describes it in his version of the gospel, chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. The angel is still speaking, and here's what happens next. The angel says, he, Jesus, is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. I think there's something in there, guys. These women responded to their fear with remembrance. They responded by remembering something, and it's obvious what they remembered. They remembered their three years of being with Jesus and the things that he said. How he told them he was going to rise again. How he told them that all this was going to happen, but hey, don't freak out because it's all within the Father's will. How he told them that this was to fulfill what the Scriptures had been predicting for hundreds if not thousands of years that a Messiah would come to redeem his people die for their sins, and then rise again from the grave. They remembered these things, and in completing their journey of being stunned, notice with me the result, and that is that right on the heels of this remembrance, they experienced joy. So the journey of these women was going from fear to remembrance, To joy. It says in verses 8 and 9 of our passage here in Matthew 28, so the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings and they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So they went from fear all the way to joy but the choice that made the difference was their choice to remember who God is, what he is about, and what he's up to in this world, even in the midst of their fearful emotions. And all I can say is that isn't that the way that life works for some, if not many, of us today? I've been a pastor now for a quarter of a century. I feel like I'm getting old. But one of the things that I've experienced in a quarter of a century of working with all kinds of people from all walks of life is that even the most rough and tumble, courageous and strong among us can get gripped with fear at times in this fallen world. Things stun us that we don't see coming. We lose our job. Our kid gets really sick. Our marriage goes south. Our bank account grows dangerously small. Our ability to ward off sin grows weak and we succumb. Lots of things, terrifying things that can bring fear in our lives even to the most rugged and gritty among us. But then, What we learn from Easter Sunday here is that we have a choice, that in the midst of fear, for those of us who have any understanding of God, we can choose to remember. And you're saying, what do you remember? Well, I've been doing this now for about 34 years since I became a Christian. And over 34 years, what I do in the midst of my fear is I remember all the promises of God in his Word. So when I'm fearful, I remember things like this. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. I remember that his mercies are new every morning. I remember that there's no temptation that has seized me except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. I remember that if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive me for my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I remember when I'm most fearful that he has numbered every hair on my head, which is getting thinner and thinner as I go along, and that every day of my life has been ordained, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And some of you who are new to this is going, where are you getting all this stuff? From the Bible, from the things that he has revealed, that on a regular basis I and many people around here remember when we experience fear in this world, and when we do that, you know what happens? Joy starts to come. I wish I could promise you that all your circumstances would change, but that's not what happens. The women were still dealing with an empty tomb and didn't understand it initially. What happens, however, is that when we remember, there becomes an undercurrent of joy that God gives us in our lives that makes all the difference. So in identifying with the women, on this Easter morning, we can go, if we choose to, from fear to remembrance to joy. That's the first thing that we can identify with. Now, as I thought about it this week, I thought, you know, I wish this is, how, this is how it worked for any and all of us who experience fear in life, but let's be realistic. All of us know that that's just not true. And so I find it interesting that there's a second group of players in Matthew's resurrection account that actually shows us this and helps us understand this. And and even the dangers involved in in, in our response and they're the guards you might remember that the chief priests the religious leaders were afraid that the disciples would steal the body and try to fake a resurrection so they posted four guards Roman guards on, on the tomb guarding one dead man and the guards initial response to the empty tomb is very interesting it was just like the women and it was one of fear It makes it very clear here. Look at verse 4. It says, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I love Matthew's description here. We have a modern-day slang for it. We call it being frozen with fear. Y'all have heard that before. Psychologists actually tell us that that's possible, that there are times that you can be so afraid that your arms and your legs just don't even work. That you're frozen with fear. That's exactly what's happening with the guards here. At the presence of the angel, and an empty tomb, they couldn't move. And so they were stunned with fear, just like the women. But it's interesting. Instead of remembering like the women did, because they probably didn't have much to remember, they chose to do something very different in response to their fear. They fled. They ran. They went from fear to flee. Look at verse 11. It says, while they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. (laughs) So I love the picture being painted here. When when, when the women and the angel were gone, all of a sudden their arms and legs started working again. Their fear subsided, and now they're going, what do we do? And so they ran into the city to their bosses. Now don't miss this. And they told their bosses the truth of what happened. It says in verse 11, they told all that had taken place. And yet it is with this confession of truth that certain choices are now made that will alter the very course of these guards' lives and their spiritual experience with the resurrection. Look at what happens next in verses 12 through 15. It says that when when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the guards took the money and did as they were directed. So the guards took a bribe and clanned up all about this. Kind of reminds you of who? Judas. With what Judas did to Jesus And in completing their journey then, let's say it like this, they go from fear to flee to caving in. And that's the guards' experience with the resurrection of Jesus. Now guys, we need to go just a tad bit deeper with this because I don't think this is just some physical outward, okay, here's what a bunch of goofy guards did in response to an empty tomb. I think this is actually indicative of the inward journey of the guards in response to the resurrection what do i mean think about it they witnessed and experienced a divine event in their souls god showed up in their midst and performed the greatest miracle ever recorded in history and they had a front row seat to it and they saw it and they experienced it clearly and without a doubt and in responding to this fear-based surprise They sought human counsel and went against their own senses. They quickly ran to other men who they knew would not be friendly to this news. And then in listening to their advice, don't miss this, they went against what their own eyes, ears, and experience told them was true, and they chose a path of non-integrity. And so instead of grabbing a chance to turn their pointless lives around and experiencing joy like the women did, these guards choose to run and to cave in on what they know is true. What an incredible contrast between these two groups, right? Between the women who chose, in response to their fear, to remember and find joy, the guards had the same fear. And they chose to run and to cave in. And just like I told you that you and I can identify with the women today, here's what I'm absolutely convinced of in my life today. And that's that we can also, if we dare, we can choose to have the same experience as the guards. And sadly speaking, many people do. They come very close, if not smack dab in the middle, to having an experience with God. God's knocking on the door of their life. They're responding and then they get afraid or they listen to dumb voices and they run and they cave in and they lose out on the chance to know God. About 20 years ago when I was pastoring my first pastorate in Detroit, I'll never forget one Easter weekend in which a young college grad in our church brought his girlfriend to Easter service. His name was Tim, and Tim was really good at what we call missionary dating. I don't know if you guys know what missionary dating is. It's, it's common among Christians today where if you grow up in a religious home and your parents tell you only to date religious girls, but you don't find the religious girls all that attractive, you go out and find attractive girls who aren't religious and you bring them to church to try to convert them. It's called missionary dating, and it even happens here all the time. And, and Tim was really good at that, man. He'd come into church like every other month with a, a beautiful gal on his arm, and I'd go, well, she's obviously not saved, and, and, and he'd hope that she would. I know, I'm going to get emails over that one. I, I got two daughters, leave me alone. And, and that day, however, it actually worked. Tim's girlfriend had a profound experience that Easter Sunday. It was really amazing to watch. She had not grown up in a home with any real spiritual emphasis at all, and she was stunned when she discovered the implications of the resurrection. Our pastor explained that Jesus Christ died for her sins and for our sins, and that he rose on the third day to show his victory over death, to show his victory over sin, to show his victory that we can have in life. And she was moved in her spirit. She was convinced in her mind that at the end of the service, when he prayed, she came to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord. And it was an amazing day, and my friend Tim was telling me all about this. A few weeks later, I saw Tim and asked him how his girlfriend was doing, and it was a different story now. He said, not well. He said she was having a lot of trouble making sense of her newfound faith, and he asked me if I would meet with her, and I said if she wants to, I'd be happy to, and she did. And so we met, and as we unpacked what was going on in her spiritual life, now a few weeks after that event, it became clear to me that she was in full retreat mode in her newfound faith. You see, she went home to her family, and she told them that she had accepted Christ. And her family said, what, are you foolish? That stuff's not real. It's going to ruin you. And then she went and told her friends what she had done. And she told her professors at the university. She was a psychology major. And they said, have you not read Freud? This is wishful thinking. It's wish fulfillment. Have you not read Skinner? There isn't one psychologist worth his weight in gold that would agree what's happened to you is real. And before you knew it, she was starting to doubt the veracity, the reality of that experience that she had had with God. She was taking counsel from some people around her, and mixed that with her own newness and intellectual doubts, she feared, and she told me this, that what happened to her that Sunday was that her intellectual and emotional senses simply failed her. That's what she said to me. And we talked about this, and I shared with her some things that I'm going to share with you in just a minute about how to work through doubt and unbelief, and yet she wasn't going to have any of that. She was well down the path of fleeing what had happened to her. And last I heard, she had pretty much turned her back on her experience that day, caved in really, in great part due to the voices of a misguided family and an academic culture that thinks they know what is true but is not always correct. Are you starting to see, folks? Fear and confusion, look, let's all be realistic, are a natural part of life. They are. But they're designed to be worked through courageously, wisely, and with the utmost integrity never to run from. And cave into. And yet that's the easy path. Uh, Scott Peck challenges us to take the road less traveled. The road more traveled is this road that we can take that just says, let's watch more episodes of NCIS. Let's buy another car. Let's go on another vacation. Let's amass some more toys. And let's not think about all that religious, spiritual stuff. And the reality is when we do that, we're turning our backs on God, knocking on our door, trying to get our attention to take us through that tunnel, sometimes even a tunnel of chaos, to the other side where there is joy, as we're going to see right now, even worship. You see, the Bible is completely realistic. People that tell me the Bible is a pie-in-the-sky book, I, I know one thing for certain, they haven't really read it. The Bible is an incredibly realistic book. Let me show you how realistic it is. This third group of people, we've looked at the guards, we've looked at the women, uh, are the disciples. And you know what's fascinating? The disciples actually teach us how to navigate through unbelief to the point of worship and belief. Because the guard's initial, I mean, the, the disciples' initial response to the resurrection is not what you might think. Their initial response was one of unbelief. It says in Matthew 28, verse 17, it says, And when they saw him, meaning Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And all I can tell you is that this is an understatement. I mean, this particular description here in Matthew actually takes place several days, if not weeks, after the resurrection. We know this because verse 16 tells us that they had to go to Galilee to see Jesus, and the resurrection took place in Jerusalem. Galilee is a three-day walk up to Jerusalem, so be, from Jerusalem, so between verses 16 and 17, there's at least three days that transpire, most likely weeks. And further, we have other gospel writers that tell us the disciples initial response. Mark tells us that their initial response was, and I quote, to refuse to believe it. Luke tells us that their initial response was one in which they called the idea nonsense. And Jesus even accuses the disciples of unbelief and having, I quote, hard hearts. I mean, there's no mistaking it. The initial response of the disciples to the news of a resurrection was one of unbelief. And I would submit to you that that makes perfect sense. Because the guards and the women had one thing the disciples didn't. They saw the doggone thing. They saw the empty tomb. They experienced. The disciples, you remember, were huddled in an upper room hiding because their master was now dead. So they had to get the news like you and I secondhand. And again, this idea of a resurrection is stunning. And so many times our initial response is going to be one of unbelief, especially if we're thinking rightly. But it's fascinating Instead of stopping at unbelief, like some do today, the disciples decided to add a very important follow-up to their stunned minds, and it's what I'm going to call examination. They followed up their unbelief with examination. In other words, they went and checked it out. The ones that could went and checked out the empty tomb, and then the other ones continued to lay before God, give me some evidence. So in John 20, verse 8, we see two of the disciples running to the empty tomb. It says, then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. So John and Peter ran to the tomb. John gets there first, but he waits outside. Peter gets in there, runs and sees the empty tomb. John runs in. They both see it empty, and they believe. And then in Luke 24, 39, and 40, Jesus appears to all of the disciples. And he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And it's fascinating. As the disciples checked out the evidence through seeing and touching and, and examining, they went from unbelief to examination. Now, don't miss this, to worship. It says in verse 17 of Matthew 28, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Luke says they praised God. John says that when Thomas saw him, who was the toughest nut, and he believed, that that Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And the reason that I put worship up there is very important for you to to notice. And that's that we worship that which is most important to us. Amen? Amen. That's a good place for an amen. We worship that which is most important to us. Amen? Amen. We do. So we live in a culture today in which people worship their jobs, they worship their cars, they worship themselves, they worship little Johnny and Susie, their kids. We worship our vacation, our 401K. We worship lots of things. C.S. Lewis said life is made up of first place things and second place things, but only one thing can take absolute first place, and it's that one thing that will garner our worship. And what happened here to the disciples is that all of a sudden God, the resurrected Jesus, took first place status in their life, and they worshiped in response, whereas just days and weeks before they were in a realm of unbelief. Their unbelief led to life-changing worship because they examined it. And I know how some of you are thinking, you're thinking, well, Jamie, we're not there 2,000 years ago. We can't go to an empty tomb. We can't uh, see and experience the resurrected Jesus because I've read Acts 1. He's ascended into heaven but the reality is, is that he is just as alive today as he was back then, and there have been plenty of people today, isn't this so awesome, that have journeyed through unbelief to examination to worship. C.S. Lewis, famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia, professor at Oxford and Cambridge, talks about his conversion back in the 1940s of how he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. I love that description. The reason he came kicking and screaming into it is because he had an initial response of unbelief and then he looked at the evidence which we'll talk about in a second and and, and he came to believe but he still didn't want to submit even though he intellectually knew it was true so he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of god ravi zacharias an indian-born hindu had the same experience unbelief examination worship lee strobel former legal affairs editor of the chicago tribune back in the 1970s his wife leslie goes to church he thinks it's going to ruin their very lives because she becomes a christian but before everything goes south he decides to go to church himself he starts a process of examining eventually he writes a book called the case for christ and came to believe i got lots of stories like that guys and you're saying what did these guys examine well they read books first and best one being the bible They attended church, they asked questions, they looked deeply into the claims made by the Gospel writers, and through a journey of seeking and examining, they came out believing and worshiping. I mentioned that I'm 51 this year. I've been a pastor now for a quarter of a century. This year I also celebrated another milestone in my life. This is exactly two-thirds of my life this year that was spent as a follower of Jesus, which means the first third, first 17 years, I was not. And I can remember those days like they were yesterday. I was spiritually going no place fast. Eventually got to the point of examining. And it led to worship. It's a journey that many of us have taken. So here's the deal for you. And with this, we're going to be done, if this uh, resonates with you at all. I was meeting with my buddy Tom Schrader this week. Tom's a pastor down in Gilbert, semi-retired. It's going to be one of the first times that Tom is not preaching on Easter Sunday. And we were reminiscing about all the Easter Sundays that he's done Tom's a witty guy. He said he used to get up every Easter and tell all the Christmas and Easter crowd that uh, really the best Sunday to visit church is not Christmas or Easter. He used to tell people that the best Sunday to visit church is the Sunday after Easter. And the reason is is you get a better look at what church is really like. (laughs) Because you see, on Easter, we pull out all the stops, and we're on our best behavior, and we bring our A game to the plate and all of that. But if you want to really get down to what church is about and the daily, weekly work that we do to keep our faith sustained, then come the Sunday after Easter, and that's what I invite you to do. We're going to start a series next week simply on belief, taking a look at ten things from the Gospel of John that Jesus taught us that might help bolster our belief and faith. It's a great time for you to seek. So what's it going to be for you this Easter Sunday? i got to believe you're stunned by the idea of a resurrection. If you're not, you're not thinking clearly enough about it. And as you're stunned by it, just remember that you do have a choice. You can choose like the women to remember and find joy. You can choose to bury your head in the sand and run and cave in and find nothing. Or you can choose even to examine it and journey with God and see if it won't lead you to a place of worship. Jesus promised us that could happen to you. He says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask. And it will be given. He loves you. He's the hound of heaven, and He won't stop until He has you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for these three groups of people that teach us wonderful things on Easter Sunday. God, I got to believe that each person here cares about the quality of their spiritual life, or they wouldn't be here even on Easter Sunday. So I pray, God, that as we give cogent thought to our lives, that we might think about the women, the guards, the disciples. try to identify ourselves somewhere in all of that and lord if there's some that are here today or at one of our venues and campuses that are at a point where they say i believe i get it i pray god that right where they sit they would mark this day as their spiritual birthday and that lord they would never deny that experience when you enter into our hearts and our minds and you get our attention and lord may the rest of our lives be one of growth in our understanding of you and our following of you through your son christ Thank you for Easter Sunday. Thank you that you have come for us. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. Happy Easter.